Well, the end of that timer indicates that it is time to get this webinar started. Uh, good evening. My name is Tamara Boguski, and I am a content manager for the PBS Teachers website. And I will be your moderator for this evening. In tonight's webinar, we will be joined by Cyrus Rangan, medical toxicologist for the Los Angeles Department of Public Health, and Moises Rahman is preschool center director and the educational consultant for the SIDS Science Kid. Dr. Rangan will first introduce you to some basic information on recognizing seasonal and H1N1 flu symptoms and offer, some educa offer educators some ideas for prevention and family support. Mr. Rahman will then share how a recently aired episode of Sid the Science Kid can help children understand the science behind viruses and vaccines and prevention techniques such as hand washing. While vaccinations are a parent's choice, kids may have questions about vaccines, so we can also answer questions about how to address the concerns brought up by your students. Before we get started, I'm going to let Steve Hargaden, my co-moderator, give you a quick orientation to the Illuminate platform. Hi, hi everyone. Steve. Welcome. Sure glad to have you here. If this is your first time in Illuminate, just want to give you a little bit of a sense of how this works. Uh, you'll see that at the um, this is actually an old slide. I need to get you a new slide, but the, the polling that you see at the top is actually now down at the bottom of the participant window. There's a green check and a red X. If a question is asked, a yes or no question, green check means yes, the red X means no. If you look next to those uh, two little icons, to the left you'll see a clapping hand, when I'm doing that right now, a smiley face a confused look or a thumbs down. Those are ways of uh, participating actively during the session. We hope you'll use them. And then to the far left, you'll see a hand with a green arrow up. That's your way of, if there's a Q&A period of time, that's your way of actually raising your hand and saying you'd like to ask a question. You can send a message to other people who are in the chat, uh, to the group as a whole or individually. There is a drop-down box next to the send button to send a message to another uh, individual participant, but do be aware that all of the moderators tonight actually see those messages. They're not fully private. And if you're having trouble hearing, and you are in the US, you can dial in to the teleconference line. And to the lower right of your, in, in the audio box, you'll see a little handset icon in there, instructions once you click on that to dial into the conference line. So if you are getting some audio difficulty, please feel free to do that. So now we give you your first chance to participate. I'm going to give you all permissions to modify this uh, map of the world. And you do that by clicking on the little wand with the red star at the end. It's to the left of the map, up by Alaska usually. And you can click on the map and let us know where you're listening from. Now we know we have Spain tonight. I wonder if we have anybody else from parts other than the United States. Good, and we're going to do the same thing on a US map now. Just click, you don't need to re-click the wand, but you should just be able to click on the map and let us know where you're listening from. Okay, terrific. What a lot of fun. Nice to have you all here tonight. I'm really looking forward to the session, so I'll turn it back to uh, you, Tamara. Thank you, Steve. Um, I'd like to go ahead and introduce you to our first presenter for the evening, Dr. Cyrus Rangan. Dr. Rangan, as we start the conversation, can you please share your thoughts on why H1N1 is causing such an uproar, and is there cause to be concerned about that above the regular seasonal flu? Sure. Um, you know, H1N1 kind of came around uh, 
and took us by surprise earlier this year, around April or so. And what I think is important to realize is that it's actually a virus that's been around for quite a long time. And when we had the flu epidemic in the United States and actually worldwide in 1978, that essentially was the H1N1 virus. Now, certainly it's gone through many changes and mutations since that time. So it's not an entirely new virus to us, but the way that it has been presenting within our populations this year is quite different. So H1N1 is certainly uh, a sort of a new virus to us as we think about how we do uh, flu tracking and flu surveillance. But for the most part, H1N1 and seasonal flu affect people more or less the same way. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, just let you continue your presentation now and turn control of the slides over to you. Okay, great. So, you know, when we look at, at seasonal flu and H1N1 flu, it's important to realize that we are, although talking about two distinct viruses, we're still talking about the flu. And when you look at seasonal flu, it's actually sort of three different viruses that's within the seasonal flu all by itself that tend to cause what we conventionally know as the flu. And now H1N1 is sort of a fourth virus that's been uh, a virus of concern uh, for this year. And we have a separate vaccination for H1N1, and then we have a separate vaccination for the three seasonal flu viruses. Now, where did it come from? Just as I said before, it's something that has been around for, for quite some time, and it's undergone uh, changes over the uh, last several decades or so. It's something that we refer to as antigenic drift and antigenic shift, but those are just scientific technical terms to show that this is a virus that was around for a while, but has mutated and turned into something else that uh, has raised some more concerns this year. Now, what is unique about H1N1? Well, sometimes you hear it referred to as the swine flu. And these days, we're trying actually to get away from that term a little bit because we don't want pe people to get the impression that this is a disease that you particularly get from pigs. Uh, the reason we call it the swine flu is that it has some genes inside that virus that are very similar to the genes of the virus that does affect pigs and does give pigs the flu. But there's also some bird virus in there. There's even some human virus in there. So what we know is the H1N1 virus is actually a combination of, of uh, several different genes that make up this very, very unique virus. Fortunately for most of our uh, medical uh, types of, uh, of interventions for this disease, things function more or less the same as they do for seasonal flu. But what we have seen is that the H1N1 virus seems to be taking younger people by storm a little bit more than older folks. And that's one thing that raises a lot of concerns with us, and it of course raises concerns with you folks as educators. Moving on to the next slide, how do people get infected with the seasonal flu or H1N1 flu? Well, it's primarily the common sense things that we think about all the time. It's primarily person-to-person -person spread. And that can be in the form of coughing around somebody, sneezing around somebody, or simply carrying the virus on your hands and then touching your face. And that can be hand-to-hand -hand spread so that you can carry it on your own hands, give it to somebody else, and then that person can touch his or her face and contract the virus as well. So we have contact from hand-to-hand, -hand, and we also have airborne uh, exposures that can lead to uh, contracting the H1N1 flu or the seasonal flu. Now, people can actually be contagious from approximately one day before they actually have symptoms to up to five to seven days after their symptoms have actually completed. Now, this kind of goes for lots of different viruses. So even conventional coughs and colds that are non-flu, even those can follow the same kind of pattern. And each day after your symptoms are done, you become less and less contagious. But it is important to realize that even once you're over these symptoms, it's still important to follow all the precautions that we normally follow to try to make sure that you don't shed more virus, even though your symptoms have gotten better. 
but probably more important than that and to realize for the sake of your classrooms and the environment that is around your children in those classrooms, these viruses actually may stay viable and stable on surfaces for approximately two to eight hours after they have been placed on those surfaces. So for example, if a child has a runny nose and that child touches his or her nose and now carries that virus on his or her hand, if they go ahead and touch the desk or they touch a doorknob or some other surface in the classroom, that virus can stick around for a number of hours. And that's why uh, the uh, attention to our environment, which we'll get to in just a moment, uh, can be very, very important. On the next slide, we're just going to go over a little bit of the symptoms of seasonal flu and H1N1 flu. And we're grouping them together because, in fact, the symptoms are quite similar, no matter which virus you get. But they do vary quite a bit from individual to individual. So when you look at the kinds of symptoms you can see, it really can be any one or any two or any three or all of the following symptoms. They may include fever, sore throat, a runny nose, or a stuffy nose. And that's one of sort of the misnomers sometimes about flu that some people think that a runny nose is just a plain old cold, whereas a stuffy nose is more of an indicative of the flu. And those uh, adages don't really hold water today. So it really could be a runny nose or a stuffy nose uh, when you have the flu. Uh, aches and pains that can be kind of from head to toe or really anywhere in the body. Uh, headaches, chills that may accompany those fevers, and decreased energy levels. So children who just don't really feel up to their normal speed, so to speak. Now, what's also important to realize is that many individuals actually may have these respiratory symptoms, like the cough and the cold, runny nose, stuffy nose, etc., even without fever. So just because a fever is not present does not mean they couldn't actually have the flu, and those symptoms that they're actually having could be H1N1 or the seasonal flu. This next slide is just to give you a few tips on some things that would be important to recognize if you had a child in your classroom who maybe was feeling a little bit under, weather, under the weather for a couple of days, but now might be experiencing very, very severe signs of flu illness. And these are just a few things just to kind of keep in mind, and just in case you happen to have a child who gets very sick very fast, which does happen on occasion. So if you notice that any of your students or children in your, in your facility are displaying fast breathing or difficulty breathing, especially when they are at rest, when they are simply sitting on the ground or sitting at their desk and they are uh, having a breathing that seems very much out of proportion to what you would expect when they are at rest. That can be a sign that the flu is getting very, very bad. Uh, if the skin of that child starts to turn very sort of a pale bluish color or any kind of a pale color, that can be a sign that the child is becoming very dehydrated. Sometimes it can be a sign that the body is going into shock as a result of a severe infection. So that would be another cardinal sign to look out for. Or if you have a child who is simply refusing to drink. Now, it doesn't mean that if you just offer one glass of water or, or apple juice or whatever it is that the child refuses at one time that you've got to think, oh, this child has severe flu. Not exactly like that. But if a child goes through several hours of the day consecutively simply refusing to eat or drink at all, well, that can be a sign that something is in fact going on, that the child is in fact displaying some severe signs of uh, the flu sort of taking over their body. And that can be as, as a result of a child vomiting throughout the day or just simply refusing to drink because in fact uh, they feel like they just can't drink. And as a result, they can get into a vicious cycle where they get more dehydrated as a result of the flu. And that can lead to a rapid deterioration in their clinical status. Or if a child is poorly responsive, this is obviously sort of a, a no-brainer concept for many different illnesses, not just the flu. But if a child simply isn't responding the way they normally do, if they're extremely tired and very hard to wake up, that of course would be a sign of a severe illness, uh, whether it be flu or any other. And here's one that's a little bit less intuitive, 
uh, but kind of applies to the way that the flu has been carrying on uh, over the past uh, several months or so. If you see that a child has had an improvement in symptoms, let's suppose they had a mild illness that was uh, deemed as the flu by their physician, now they're back at school and things are looking okay for a day or so, and then the child starts to get, maybe over the next day, more severe fever and cough, especially more severe than that first illness. Well, that can actually be a sign of a very, very severe infection coming on. What we are seeing in some of these young people that they get over the mild flu, but then some other illness happens to occur on top of that, like a bacterial pneumonia or something more severe than the first illness. And in some of the very bad outcomes that we have seen over the, uh, across the country, we've seen that some of these children develop a pneumonia after the flu, and that can be a sign that the illness has gotten uh, very much worse. Now, what can you do as educators when you are uh, looking at your students and, and worried that they might actually be getting the seasonal flu or if they've been diagnosed with the flu, uh, whether it be the seasonal or H1N1 flu. Well, obviously, we encourage you to encourage parents uh, to contact a family's health care provider. And that is actually one of the most important things that we can do uh, no matter what situation we are in when it comes to the flu. One of the most important reasons for this is that sometimes we feel like we can handle these illnesses at home, and sometimes we'll even go to the Internet and try to get some of the latest information about what might be going on. And all those are certainly good things. But one thing to realize is that the recommendations and the way that we track and do surveillance of the flu changes sometimes even day by day. And then physicians such as myself will be receiving recommendations from places like the public health departments or the Centers for Disease Control about new things that we need to be looking out for ourselves as physicians and our patients about what to do next when we see a child who has the flu or is suspected of having the flu. And sometimes all that information is not necessarily available to parents and educators uh, on a timely basis. So we encourage you to make sure that parents are in contact with their healthcare provider, whether it is a visit to the healthcare provider or a phone call to the healthcare provider, to make sure that everyone is up to, date, up to date, up to par, and on the same page about what is the next move uh, for that child. And then, of course, encouraging parents to keep those children at home as much as possible uh, during the illness. And not just simply keeping the child out of school, but also keeping the child uh, from coming into contact with other children while they are at home to try to make sure that the spread of the illness is kept to a minimum. One thing that we also discourage um, and quite adamantly is uh, to make sure that you tell parents to never take their child to what's called a flu party. And this may be a term that you, you might not have heard of, but this comes from uh, the, the way that sometimes society has viewed a lot of different illnesses. And there is uh, an old story about how when a child gets the chicken pox, that sometimes the neighborhood parents will bring their, ch their child over to the, the home of that child who has the chicken pox to literally have that child play with the sick child and get the chicken pox themselves so that they can get the illness and get, the Im get themselves sort of immunized uh, to that illness by getting the illness themselves. And that way, parents don't have to worry about the child getting chicken pox at a later date. So it's sort of a controlled way of making sure your child gets an illness. And this is a practice that we discourage for any illness, for any circumstance, at any time as healthcare providers. So make sure that it is something that you actually iterate uh, to your parents, that if they ever hear about this term flu party, hey, I can just take my child over to this sick child's house and get the flu so they get the illness over with, and now they have immunity. That's always, always, always a bad idea. Because although, yes, for the most part, we see mild illnesses in most of these children, we have seen a lot of bad outcomes. And yes, children have died as a result of getting the flu. So the best uh, mode of action is always going to be prevention. 
Now, what can we do as educators and as uh, adults in general when we are regarding our children to help prevent the spread of seasonal flu virus and the H1N1 flu virus? Well, obviously you want to provide families with as much information as possible, and this can come in many forms. So as uh, educators, you may be receiving various uh, information that may come down from the CDC for general recommendations about what's going on with the flu right now. And if you go to the CDC's website, you'll actually find plenty of information there. There are areas where you can click that says information for families, information for parents, information for schools. And you can even download that information in the form of PDF files, and that's fully dispensable to, uh, to your uh, classrooms, to your colleagues, and to your parents. In addition, your region, depending on what's going on with surveillance of the flu in your area, you actually may be receiving specific reports about your particular region uh, about the flu that may come from your local health department. And those usually will be dispensed to your school districts and then consequently to the leaders of your school and consequently to you as, as educators. So be on the lookout for uh, new information that may be coming down the pipe in that regard. We also encourage you to model good uh, um, health habits and encourage students to practice these health habits within the school and also at home. And one of the best things that you can do is to make sure that people are washing their hands as often as possible. And for you as educators to wash your hands in front of your students can be a very, very impactful uh, kind of activity. At minimum, we usually suggest that schools have some sort of policy during flu season to wash uh, their students' hands as soon as they get to school before and after every meal time or snack time, and also when they depart school. Those should be the minimum times when a student should be washing his or her hands. And again, to do that in front of your students yourself uh, can be very, very useful. And of course, to wash your hands even more often than that uh, is always going to be a good idea. We also, uh, again, encourage students to stay home if they're sick and to stay home yourself as an educator if you are sick uh, as well. You are just as capable of spreading the, uh, the flu infection uh, to your students as your students are to themselves. So uh, make sure that you realize that you are part of that, uh, that same uh, dynamic. And if you yourself are sick, uh, you should be staying home as well. And also to be prepared with proper supplies. And this is something that applies to both educators and to parents to make sure that people are prepared before the flu may hit their family uh, with things like tissues. And for families to be prepared with over-the-counter medications like fever reducers so they don't have to run out and get them while their child is sick. And of course to use those medications under the advice of a healthcare provider. But having these kinds of supplies uh, on hand uh, early is always, uh, is always a good idea so you're not scrambling around when children in fact do become sick. And then, of course, cleaning common surfaces uh, on an everyday basis. And this is, of course, something that schools should be discussing with their custodial staff to make sure that surfaces, uh, the common surfaces, especially tables that children use uh, as a group or, or their individual desks, are cleaned uh, thoroughly every single day, uh, at least at the end of the day, so that by the time the morning comes around, we'd have, we don't have a live flu virus that's going to be uh, potentially infecting the kids when they get back to school. Okay, and the next slide, I think I'll be turning it right back to the moderators for the poll. All right, thank you very much. Um, we had one question come in the chat window that I'm going to let you address now, and that was, what causes viruses to mutate? Oh, this is a this is a great question. You know, viruses kind of have this sort of survival of the fittest kind of mentality, so to speak. Now, viruses themselves are not really live organisms in the same way that bacteria or even people are. Uh, but they have this ability to sort of defend themselves uh, by turning themselves into other beasts. And so what happens is when a virus gets into the human body, the way it 
stays alive, so to speak, is that it gets into our cells and uses the, the small organs within our cells and the machinery of our cells to reproduce themselves. And as viruses start to die, they basically take new genetic material that's within those cells and they start to create new genes. So the viruses themselves will have more or less the same genes that they had before, but they'll basically uh, change a few of those gene sequences so that they become a new virus so that they can't be attacked by the same antibodies that we developed the first time. This is why we have to get a new flu vaccination uh, uh, researched and dispensed every single year. So last year's flu vaccination isn't going to protect you as well against today's flu as the new vaccination that we developed this year. So that's uh, one of the reasons that we uh, have a new flu uh, vaccination every single year. And uh, we have one more question right now, and then we will take additional questions at the end of the webinar. Uh, so the question for you now is how truly helpful is hand sanitizer? Great question. Um, of course, we, we always try to encourage hand washing as much as possible. Uh, not to say that hand sanitizer isn't a good thing, but hand washing generally is a much more uh, complete process because hand washing is soap that goes through all the fingers and all both sides of the hands and up the arms as well. And we encourage people to do so for about 20 seconds or so, and that is generally the best thing to do. However, we do realize that sometimes, you know, as time permits, not everyone is able to do that. If, let's suppose you have a classroom full of 30 kids. Well, it may take you an hour to get uh, all those kids uh, to wash their hands. So what sometimes we can do in the meantime is use something like hand sanitizer. And that actually is a viable means of, of preventing the spread of flu. Again, it's not as good as hand washing, but if hand washing is not immediately available or maybe a little bit uh, cumbersome to do at the time, hand sanitizer is a great thing. And we generally uh, suggest the alcohol-based hand sanitizers, but if those are not available, even the non-alcohol-based sanitizers uh, are just as good. Great. Thank you. Sure. Uh, I'd like to uh, get a sense from those participating this evening. If your students have expressed concerns about the flu or vaccinations in your classrooms, you can use the green check or red X that is just to the left of the slide or just below the participant list to let us know. And we'll give you a few more seconds for a few more people to answer. Okay, and then we'll go ahead and publish our results. So uh, of those who have answered, it seems like quite a few have had students who have expressed concern. At least 14 of you that are on the, on the uh, call this evening. Well, we want to uh, talk a little bit about how you can address students' concerns. And we are going to go in a minute to Sid the Science Kid who really would probably address the concerns of preschool or elementary students, but the concepts he has to teach could apply to everybody. Um, we do want to point out that engaging families in the conversation is a very important part of addressing students' concerns. We want to make sure to respect the family's uh, decisions as far as vaccinations or how they treat it. We want to make sure to provide age-appropriate information, so the information provided to a preschooler or kindergartner would certainly be different than information provided to a ninth or tenth grader. We want to encourage healthy habits to begin with, of course, and to also make sure to follow the recommendation of your school leaders. 
So with that, I'm going to go ahead and turn the presentation over to Dr. Roman and let him introduce you to Sid. Hello, everyone. So my duty is to introduce you to Sid, who is a very precocious preschooler that wonders about how things work. And you might wonder, you know, why do we have a science show? And if you haven't seen it, this is basically a science show for young children um, that helps uh, from the perspective of a preschooler to think about how things work. And the impetus for, for SID is really based around, you know, there's a lot of talk about STEM and the science and that we are lacking in science. So the National Association for Young Children is talking about it, President Obama is talking about it, Secretary Duncan is talking about it. A lot of people are talking about it. And science is such an important part of how children figure out how things work. And really investigation is really at their nature. So that's really why SID is here. And really now taking the format from SID to help answer those questions about why do I need to get a shot. So we'll move on to the next slide. So we know that children ask a lot of questions. So do scientists. They share a lot of really you know, um, key ideas in the way that they do their work. Um, children investigate, ask questions. They experiment. You know, they try something over and over and see how many times they will have the same outcome. Um, similarly, SID will show things like uh, you know, observing or comparing contrasting, recording, those kinds of things. And we also try to model a lot of best practice about what we would be doing with young scientists and young children. And we would see uh, drawing and writing observations, obviously age appropriate for, for um, preschoolers. We would also be seeing the language of science being introduced in the episodes and, and uh, things like that. So really um, taking it down to the children's level, but giving them something that would really be something new, some new word. So one of the big things that we do on Sid is that he goes to his super fab lab. And you can see here in the next slide that there's a laboratory and Sid's raising his hand. That's really where a lot of the investigations happen. And that's really where a lot of the deep science is going to be really shared and um, investigated by the children age appropriately. Now we get to the actual episode. In this episode, Sid was wonders, why do I have to get a shot? He's wondering from the perspective of a 4-year-old, is it really necessary? And so through discussions with his family, through classroom experiences where he actually is going to get a shot in the classroom, we will be able to show that. And my very favorite part is through the play. They do this kind of fun little skit where they talk about you know, getting a shot and they pretend that they're viruses and you know, they're antibodies. And they use all that language that goes into that. So we are going to be introducing a lot of the heavy language of the vaccination process. But it's really going to be fun because it's done age appropriately. There's songs that will reinforce the, the learning. And really, if you've ever um, seen Schoolhouse Rock, a lot of our songs are um, done that way, where the song will be really catchy. And if you um, remember the song, I'm Just a Bill, you know, Sitting on Capitol Hill, a lot of people can sing that. A lot of people can reinforce that. So we try to have a lot of the heavy science in our songs so that children can be singing it. And this, in this episode where um, we're going to be uh, hearing the song about um, the shot is going to hurt a little but going to help a whole lot, it has a really catchy tune. And we have a, a songwriter that really puts a lot of emphasis on the science that we give them. 
and then really making the tune really catchy so children can be thinking about it and hearing it. And as the song is playing, we're also showing um, children actually getting the shot too, and our characters will be singing the song. So there's also a lot of um, hands-on stuff that will happen, and we'll see a lot of that happening in the episode, um, whether it's you know, um, the actual seeing the shot, the actual talking about the, you know, the feelings of getting a shot, and seeing the actual real children getting the shot. So all of those parts are, are from the experiential point of the children. And the historical example is our grandmother. Our grandmother in, the, in Sid usually provides us the historical answer to my, many of Sid's questions. And in this case, the grandmother is going to talk about how she remembers the very first scientist who started talking and teaching people about washing hands. So move on to the next slide. So sir, Sid typically starts out an episode with survey. And in this episode, he's going around who's had a shot. And he's you know, trying to establish a relation to the viewer. So we kind of do this kind of uh, format that you see on the screen where the characters each take, take a turn and they either vote one way or the other. How did it feel? It also helps to demystify the shot. You know, one of our characters at the bottom, if you don't know the names of them, her name's May, and there's a little picture of her and her cat. Well, she's had a shot and her cat has had a shot. So we try to demystify the shot as, you know, other, other creatures are getting shots too, it's okay. So we try to really um, address it from that perspective. Now we move on to the investigation, the science of vaccinations. And here's where we really get down to seeing the needle. The, his grandmother's a retired nurse. She's, you know, there's talk about retired nurses are going to come out of retirement to help vaccinate people because there's such a big need. So we thought we would use that in our episode. So Sid's grandma is a guest in his in his school, and all of the children have, you know, the the teacher says all of your parents have signed for you to have the shot. So we we kind of throw that in there so everybody knows we covered, you know, all the questions. We're not just having grandma come in and give shots. And grandma's a nurse. She comes in with her outfit. She comes in with her case. And then she shows the children how the shot is going to go into their arm and how the antibody is going to start to be formed to battle the virus. So all of these things were consulted back and forth between the, you know, our, our science consultants, our pediatrician consultants, and people so that we could get the language accurate but also appropriate for young children. And that's really the basis of the science of vaccination. So you'll see our characters get a shot, and then there'll be an opportunity for us to toss to a video so that we can see the live children actually getting the shot. And there's and the video. And I think we will uh, toss to that video now. If you'll Perfect. give me just a second to get the video up and running. I will also post the URL for the video over in the chat so that if for any reason you can't see it in the screen, you can uh, see it on your own computer.
Okay. And um, we had a request a minute ago too to see the uh, video of the kids singing the song. So I'm going to go ahead and take this opportunity to let you look at that as well. Yeah, the song's really great. <laughs> And again, the URL is posted over in your chat. Uh, yes, Nicole, the entire webinar is being recorded and will be available on the teacher's website in a couple of days. Thank you, Sid. And uh, I'm going to turn the presentation back over to Moises. Well, I saw that uh, a couple of you guys are saying that it, um, the the characters are really cute. <laughs> They're actually, you know, there's a lot that, a lot of work that actually goes into the production of this. They're actually live. Um, capture animation that you're seeing, so people are actually dancing and doing this kind of stuff. And this episode was actually out of our sequence that was uh, PBS and uh, KCT and the Henson Company of everybody involved was a, kind of a reaction to try to help the community. So we put our teams together, kind of out of season, to to really develop this episode, especially to respond to the community's need for more information. So um, with that note, one of the big things that also I want to point out on this episode is that there's a, a song on here that's called The Journey of the Germ. And this is a really tangible way for children to see how germs are spread. And if you look at on the slide, there's a little green dot on the hand. And what we're trying to show children is that it's, you know, when you just touch a doorknob, the germ comes on, it goes in your hand, and through the song you could see this germ traveling as people are shaking hands, they're high-fiving, but the really great part is at the end where um, this majorette is, is about to sneeze, and she sneezes into her elbow and stops the germ and then goes and washes her hands. So I think the, the tangible message for children is in these songs and, and in these um, little vignettes that, that the writers and, and producers have created with uh, such care so that the message can really be delivered to children. And I am posting the uh, URLs for these songs over in the chat window as well. <laughs> Thank you. Now one of the big things that, that we like to do with SID, and this is really prevalent in this episode also, is really the connection between home and school. That there are a lot of lessons that can be taught at school and then carried to home. Uh, the washing hands, the sanitizing, as, uh, as uh, our Dr. Cyrus talked about, was you know, really big message. So dad in the episode is really going around sanitizing things and he really, you know, makes it a point to point it out that he's doing it. And the coughing and sneezing and terrible and that you will help others. Helping your helping 
yourself by getting shot will also help others. So we really try to make those connections about how it's not really just about you, it's about everybody. And so the homeschool connection is huge for us. His question starts off at home. He investigates at his school. He continues to investigate and get answers as he continues to uh, go through his day and finally getting back home. Now one of the big things about SID isn't really about um, you know, facts and things like that. We don't, we're not trying to stack up the facts because that's going to make it science. We really want children to be intentionally involved in the process of knowing how to think critically. And so part of sharing this uh, vaccine information is so that everybody can really learn about the basics and that, you know, that they're not a bad thing that we really help children to think about it critically by giving them tangible information. We tell you that it's going to develop some good stuff to help a whole lot. And so that's really the process of science that we try to deliver through SID and through this episode. And thank you. That's, uh, I think, the information I have. Um, you know, we've had a lot of fun making this episode, especially because it's such a, a need to how do you tell a, you know, somebody they have to get a shot when shots are not a very popular thing? Um, we, we're trying to, to kind of um, have an uphill battle towards the, how the shots have become kind of the, the thing that children fear, and sometimes adults you know, might even use uh, shots as threats for children. So the idea that we're trying to really put a really positive spin on getting, some, um, getting you healthy and keeping healthy through uh, our SID vaccination episode is the whole point of of uh, what we're trying to do. Thank you. All right, thank you. And uh, just real quick, we'd like to take a minute to uh, thank all of our funders for Sid the Science Kit, of course. Uh, it's funded by First Five California, the Boeing Company, the Rose Hill Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations, uh, with additional funding from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Association for Prevention, Teaching, and Research. Uh, at this time, we would like to take your questions and answers. I have a couple of quick answers uh, for those who have typed in information in the chat window already about the archive. The, this entire webinar is being recorded. And I just a few minutes ago posted the link. It will be available on PBS Teachers in about probably by the end of the week. And you will be able to see the full presentation in the Illuminate uh, platform, and you'll be able to see all of the chat with the links, etc. There was uh, also a question about is this available on DVD, and yes it is. And in fact, anybody who is attending the webinar this evening, uh, when you close out of the webinar after we are done, then there will be a survey that automatically pops up. In that survey is a place for, I believe it says for you to enter a chance to win a DVD. However, uh, we certainly have enough to cover everybody who is in the session tonight. If you would like a copy of the episode on DVD, please give us your name and address and we will supply that to you. The webinar is, or sorry, the video and episode are also available uh, on YouTube and on the SID website on pbskids.org. And I'm typing that in now and you can see the videos there as well. So uh, with that, I'd like to go ahead and throw one question um, 
back to Cyrus. And then if anybody else has questions, if you could please go ahead and type them in the chat window. We will try to answer as many as we have time for. So Cyrus, we had a question. Do we know if the ubiquitous deployment of hand sanitizer has had any impact? Well, it's a great question. It's actually one that's very, very difficult to study formally. So I couldn't give you any rates uh, as to you know, what the improvement uh, has been comparatively. But what I can tell you is this. It's sort of the point I was making before about hand sanitizing versus hand washing. That one of the reasons we don't get great hand washing is because of the time that people feel like it takes and the cumbersome nature of it. That you know you may have a lot of people, a lot of students, and may need to wash your hands all at once, and it may take a lot of time to do so. Whereas hand sanitizing is something that takes uh, seconds to do. So if you had to sort of kind of conjure up in your head a scenario of well. Should I make my children wash their hands ten times today and take up the, the number of minutes that that's going to take? Um, or should I go ahead and say, let's wash their hands as soon as they get to school, when they leave school, before and after meals? But in, in between times, maybe I'll do the hand sanitizing. So basically what it does is just add that one extra layer of protection. We do know that the hand sanitizers do kill the virus. So as long as you're doing those kinds of things, whether it's washing your hand or using hand sanitizer, we know the stuff works. Uh, but as to how much uh, it helps uh, comparatively, uh, I couldn't give you any specific numbers. Okay, it's good to know that it does help. And um, Jay has a question about how students can bring about a change within the school to, and I'm assuming that means to encourage these healthy habits. Is that for me too? Um, certainly, go right ahead. Okay, sure. Um, well, I think uh, going back to the um, uh, issue about modeling behavior, um, the more that you model the behavior of things like hand washing uh, in front of your students, and the more you talk about it and keep it as a topic of conversation throughout, uh, the better off you're going to be. And I think that one thing you can do is that if you want to get a few of maybe your more enthusiastic students uh, to sort of take the lead themselves with those kinds of activities, uh, that can be very helpful as well. So if you have some enthusiastic students in your class that are willing to model that behavior for their fellow classmates. Uh, some kids respond better to the teacher with these things. Some will respond better to their uh, classroom leaders uh, in that regard too. So I think uh, getting them involved with the process of modeling good behavior is always going to be a good thing. Can I add to that too? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I, <clears throat> I think is crucial, especially for the young children who who are uh, you know at risk, is the idea that washing hands. You know, we we actually take it for granted that that washing hands is so crucial to this stuff that when we actually started to change our practices, and by we I mean UCLA, um, we have three preschools and about 400 children, and we started systematically changing our practices about a year ago or so about how intentional we were about washing hands. That some classrooms got really creative, and they put you know follow the yellow brick road to the sink, you know, or something like that, something really creative. Some classrooms have you know these footprints that they stopped you know on the floor and said, "Did you wash your hands?" and it's taped with clear tape on the floor and it's really about you know the children will remember to do it more often than the adults look mom the 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 feet say we have to go wash our hands or whatever it is that we're doing, but that kind of really addressing it at the level for everybody, and we have the signs that are intended for the adults uh we're also offering opportunities for adults to not be inconvenienced, like having to go all the way into the classroom to wash hands. We have um, hand sanitizers for the adults so they can sanitize before they drop off their children, before they open the doors, you know, all those things. And you know, some people might say we're going overboard, but we 
are uh, have had one case of um, H1N1, and it's only been one, and it's only been isolated to one classroom, and it has not um, spread everywhere. So we uh, think that what we are doing has been kind of that inspiration from within that the question talked about. Great. I love those examples. And those are very practical ideas that teachers can uh, put into use immediately. Uh, two other um, medical questions we have. Uh, the first one is what should uh, custodians or whoever is cleaning the surfaces in the classroom use for cleaning? So uh, whichever one of you would like to address that. Sure, talk about that. Um, I, I think you know your standard cleaners that they use on an everyday basis are just fine. There's really nothing special uh, that you would need to use. Um, and if you want to use something even as diluted as a 1 to 10 bleach solution, uh, that's perfectly fine for, for killing viruses too. Um, I think probably just the most important thing to uh, advise your custodial staff of is that um, they need to take precautions while they're cleaning to make sure they don't get infected themselves. And uh, that can be uh, something that we, we tend to overlook a little bit. But because these viruses can stay alive on surfaces for, like I said, two to eight hours, uh, things like used tissues that are in the trash can that they empty, all those kinds of things uh, are potentially sources of exposure for the custodial staff. So although there's no special kinds of cleaning agents they need to use to kill and clean the viruses, uh, they need to take uh, extra precautions themselves to make sure they're not infecting themselves. The one thing I would say that is crucial for that and what kind of cleaning agents to use is make sure that they're using stuff that has not evaporated. For example, if they're using bleach, that it is fresh bleach that's been made on a daily basis. Because oftentimes people think that you've made the bleach for the week and you know that's it. It tends to get, you know, um, to evaporate and lose its, you know, its effect. So just be making your bleach daily so that, you know, if you're going to use that to, to be your sanitizer. And like uh, Sire said, it, you know, that it's one to ten. It's not, you don't need a whole lot. All you need is, uh, you know, a teaspoon and, a, you know, into one of those bottles. But that the idea is that it, it does get rotated and it isn't the same bottle that you've had all week. Good, very good point. Uh, we have a question about uh, safety advice for hand sanitizers with young children. So this is a question that has come up to us uh, a lot. I also work for the poison control system, and sometimes we get cases uh, now and then where we have young children actually getting into hand sanitizer and actually ingesting it, drinking it. And it is important to note that these are alcohol-based preparations, the same alcohol that you find in, in wine and beer, and there's a relatively high concentration of that alcohol as well. Hand sanitizer, it shouldn't be left out in the open for the kids to get themselves. It should be something that should be at the teacher's desk. Maybe the teacher can be squirting it into their hands, and that way you avoid two problems. One, you avoid the children going up to the bottle and drinking it, and you also avoid the issue of them using their hands to contaminate the bottle itself. So I think that would be one piece of advice, especially when you have young children in the classroom. Okay, thanks. And um, should someone suffering from H1N1 be completely isolated? The question about the isolation issue, um, I think one thing that we need to make sure that when we understand a question like this is that it doesn't matter whether it's H1N1 flu or seasonal flu or even just a regular old cough and cold. We take the same precautions no matter what it is. When any child has a respiratory infection, no matter what the source is, then that child should be following the same kinds of precautions that we would recommend in any situation. In other words, the child should be home as much as possible as, uh, as the illness is, uh, is working its way through the body to wait for approximately 24 hours after the last fever in order to be sure that the kid's okay to go back to school. 
And uh, as far as isolation goes, it doesn't necessarily have to be that strict because at home you're not going to put the child in the room and not touch him for 24 hours. Obviously, you're going to have people involved, and, and, and mom's going to be there, dad's going to be there, siblings might be there. It's okay to be around the patient or the or the child at home. Just make sure you're following all those precautions that we recommended before about good hand washing, about making sure that uh, people aren't sneezing and coughing on each other. And if these precautions are followed, in general, most people are going to be fine. Good. Uh, we have a question about um, green-friendly cleaners, and I'm assuming their effectiveness. Sure. For the most part, these, these cleaners are, are relatively good in terms of their uh, ability to, to, to kill off these viruses. One thing uh, about them uh, is that um, some of them, in a way that, that, that Moises was kind of alluding to as, as well, is that some of them don't necessarily stick around uh, that long uh, once, we, uh, once we make up these solutions. And it, it's important to make sure that we're using fresh batches of, uh, of these cleaners when we're actually uh, putting them into use. Uh, but for the most part, yes, we, we've seen that they're relatively decent at, that, uh, at uh, cleaning services and making sure we hold the viruses at bay. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, uh, that is the, all the questions that we've had come into the chat window thus far. I'm going to give another couple of minutes for any additional questions to come in. And I'd also like to reiterate, there's been a couple of questions about the free DVD. Uh, you do not need to send your uh, address in the chat window to us. What will happen is at the end of the webinar, there will be a survey for you to take, and there is a place within that survey for you to provide us with your name and address to receive the free DVD. And that is available to anyone on the webinar, classroom teachers, homeschool teachers, parents, uh, whoever might like it. Uh, we have a question from Lorraine about using Clorox wipes in between classes in a computer lab, and is that the best option? That generally is fine if we're, if we're talking about cleaning surfaces and, and cleaning keyboards and, and uh, uh, TV screens, touch screens, things like that. Uh, those are fine. Those are basically uh, bleach-based uh, solutions on those pre-made cloths, and those are perfectly reasonable for cleaning. Okay. Thank you. Right. Well, uh, I'm going to go ahead and proceed with the webinar at this point to do our closing slides. If anybody has any uh, last-minute questions, please feel free to type them in the chat window as we move through these. Wanted to let you know about the next webinar in this series. As you know, the PBS Teachers Live is a free webinar series introducing educators to experts, authors, and producers of PBS programs. And they share ideas on using digital media to engage students in rich learning experiences. Our next webinar is December 8th, and there you will be able to learn more about the Frontline Digital Nation project. You can also find that online at pbs.org. Uh, PBS Teachers provides over 7,000 free resources for educators to use in the classroom. And our professional development service, PBS TeacherLine, offers online courses to continue education. Classroom 2.0, our partner in this series, provides a social network for those interested in Web 2.0 and collaborative technologies and education. And it's a place where educators can participate in discussions and connect with colleagues. We want to say thank you to Illuminate, the platform we used for this evening's presentation, and give you the information about where the archive will be posted. And as I said, this should be posted by the end of this week. And uh, ask everyone to. Uh, Come back in December to see our frontline presentation. 
And I'm going to take uh, just a second and scroll through the chat window to see if we have any final questions. I don't see any right now. So I'd like to say thank you to everyone for your participation tonight. Uh, we will post a survey. I will provide the um, link in the chat window. But also, as you close out of the Illuminate session, the survey will automatically pop up for you. And if you have, we would like to get your feedback in general on the Illuminate platform and on the session this evening. But also, there are two places for you to provide optional information. And that is one, to receive the DVD for the evening. I believe it says for the giveaway in the survey. And the other is a place that if you would like a certificate of participation for this evening, you can provide us with your email address and we can give you a personalized certificate so that you can provide that to your supervisor if necessary. And we will um, hang around for a few more minutes to answer any last-minute questions. Thank you. I have posted the link to the survey in the chat window, but as I mentioned, it should also close out. When you close out of the window, I'm getting feedback from somebody on the line. The uh, survey will launch as soon as you exit the session. The survey will launch as soon as you exit. Or you can go directly to the link that I uh, provided a minute ago. I can repost that. Well, I don't see any questions further for related specifically to the uh, webinar. So I'm going to go ahead and thank our presenters and uh, turn off the recording. <laughs>